Mark chapter 13, we'll read in, in just a few moments here. Lifeway Research last year reported that uh, well over half of Christians in America see signs of the end times in, in current events, things that are happening. Uh, the Washington Post almost two years ago now reported on Christians who saw COVID-19 as pointing to the approach of the end times. Uh, just last month, another uh, major magazine uh, had an article about all the Christians who see in Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the threat of nuclear war, um, uh, signs approaching uh, uh, the end times and the return of Christ. One thing that all these opinions have in common is Mark chapter 13 and uh, passages like it, um, uh, others in Ezekiel and Revelation and so on. Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21 are, are what we call the Olivet Discourse. Uh, the Olivet Discourse. In, in Mark's Gospel, it's the longest um, single discourse of, of Jesus. Uh, and it is a very challenging passage to understand exactly what and when Jesus is, is referring to in this passage. How to fit it together. Uh, and there's, So there's been a, a broad spectrum of, of interpretation uh, of the Olivet Discourse. Um, some have seen in this chapter uh, basically being all about the disciples' lifetime, all, all in the past, um, about the, particularly the fall of, of Jerusalem um, 2,000 years ago. Uh, others, uh, many others, have seen the passage, the chapter, all about the future, or largely almost all about the future, um, things that are still to come. Um, and Christ's return. And then many others have seen sort of a complicated mix of, of the two, where Jesus is sort of flip-flopping back and forth between things that happened then and things that are still future to us. Uh, I, I think there's no question that most references to the Olivet Discourse today in, in our experience of broader uh, evangelical evangelicalism have to do with speculation about the future um, and uh, a tribulation, um, and the return of Jesus. Well, as we look at this passage this week and next week, I'm going to give you a, a largely different way to understand this passage than that. Um, but I, I want to say up front as well, that I, I don't for a moment claim to have all the, all the answers about the Olivet Discourse. This is a very challenging, uh, very challenging passage. Uh, I don't have the final word on interpreting all the details of it. Um, but I do hope to offer some clarity amidst what is often wild speculation regarding things in this in this chapter and hope uh, most importantly to to be able to direct you to Jesus main point uh, in this passage um, which is clearly not to give information about the future uh, but pastorally to encourage his disciples and and by extension to encourage us about hard things that are going to happen or, or simply continue to happen so that the disciples and again us would would not be misled First, as Jesus says, that they would not be frightened, that they would continue to trust him uh, in faithfulness uh, through, all, through all of it. So again, we're going to take two weeks to look at chapter 13 here. Uh, and I've taken the title for both weeks. Uh, you'll see the same title next week, just part two. Uh, from what is Jesus' main exhortation in this passage that I want to encourage you to look for as we read through uh, the, just the first first 23 verses today. Um, 
Uh, and just, just look at that real briefly here. The, the New American Standard sort of uncharacteristically here is not, um, not as particularly helpful uh, in, in seeing this, that seeing that Jesus keeps using the same word, in fact, throughout this passage, um, the same instruction. And the NAS uncharacteristically keeps using different words to, to translate it. Um, but look at verse 9. Uh, you'll, you'll recognize the sermon title there. But be on your guard. Be on your guard. It's, it's also the same as verse 5. In the NAS, I have see to it. Uh, it's the same Greek word, blepo, which, which can just mean to see, but also can be a warning. Watch out. Be on your guard. The NIV has there in verse 5. Watch out. Um, verse 23 as well. Take heed. Same verb there. Uh, verse 33. Um, Take heed, keep on the alert. Verse 34, in the, at the end of verse 34, in the midst of this little parable about the doorkeeper, is to stay on the alert. Then verse 5, stay on the, be on the alert. And then verse 37, be on the alert. So two, two of those I read are actually different words but, but ha, than, than the, the one main one. But um, all carry the, the same basic idea. And, and you can't possibly give an honest reading of this passage and, and miss what he says seven times. Be on your guard. Take heed. Uh, watch, watch yourself. So we're going to consider this week and next week what he, what he means by that, what Jesus means by that in, in the context of this passage. Again, today our main point is, is be on your guard. Uh, don't be misled or frightened, but, but be faithful and trusting in Jesus uh, through, through hard things. So follow along as I read the first 23 verses here. This is God's word. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. 
Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Well, Jesus' whole long discourse here begins with a a shocking prediction that follows then with with the disciples' question about it. And and those are really the first two points on on your outline here this morning. Verse 3 tells us they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, a very significant place in the Scriptures. Significant things happen, and it, it sits up uh, above Jerusalem a bit, and so they're, they're looking down across the valley on Jerusalem, and the main feature they would see there is the temple, and the whole temple complex, the, the courts around the temple. And, and even by modern standards of our buildings and cities, the, the temple would, have, would be an impressive, um, incredible sight. Solomon, of course, had built the first temple a thousand years before. Um, that lasted 300 years. 50 plus years till it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, later, people re- Jews returned to Judea. It was, it was rebuilt, though not as big, not as impressive or beautiful. Uh, hundreds of years later, along comes Herod the Great, right? The Herod that was king when Jesus was born. And he had begun a couple decades before Jesus uh, a massive uh, expansion and renovation of the temple. Really kind of rebuilding, rebuilding it. Um, and, and expanding the, the courts and so on um, to the point, and, and, and Jesus, as he's talking to the disciples here, it's still not done and it still won't be done for, for quite some time, but it's largely done by this time. Uh, it expanded it to the point that it, was, it, it took up 35 acres in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem isn't, isn't massive. Uh, 12, 12 football fields was what the temple and all the courts took up now. Um, uh, the, the outer courts had massive, impressive pillars and gates. Uh, there was beautiful white marble everywhere. Uh, Solomon had built the sanctuary, the actual temple, uh, 45 feet high, which is, you know, 3,000 years ago in the ancient world is an incredibly high building. Herod the Great took it to 60 feet high. Uh, and the, the roof was plated with gold. Um, the, the foundation, uh, the, the disciples mentioned the stones, the, the foundation uh, of, of the sanctuary and some of the retaining walls. There, there's a stone that you can go and see today still under the Temple Mount um, that is, uh, listen to these dimensions, 44 feet long by 14 by 11 feet, over a million pounds, this stone. So these were some, I don't know how they moved them, but these are some of the stones the disciples were marveling at. And you compare all of this with the you know mud brick houses that, Virtually everyone was living in, and it's and it's unbelievable building and complex. And so the disciples say, "Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings!" And and it's probably hard to underestimate their their surprise at, at Jesus' response. He doesn't concur with them. He simply says, "Not one stone we left upon another, which will not be torn down. It's all going to be destroyed." And Jesus says. In fact, predicted that before. Um, he wants the disciples, he wants all of his people to see him as the whole point of the temple. right? What the temple was pointing to all along. Uh, training the people towards. The temple was never an end in itself. The temple was always 
going to end when the true priest, the true sacrifice, the true king came. Um, and God would be worshipped by, by all nations all over the earth. That's what, what is anticipated in the scriptures. But many of the Jews have missed that. And, and now the temple has also become corrupt largely as we've seen in recent weeks. And the leaders and the people will reject Jesus this, this week to the point of killing him. Um, uh, as, as the temple, as the point of the temple, the center of history. And so God is going to allow the temple to be utterly destroyed and never rebuilt, even to this day. Um, in judgment, uh, but also in, in confirmation of Jesus and who he was. That, that he was the point and, and the fulfillment of all of this. So this leads, secondly, to the disciples' question. Verse 3, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew uh, come to him privately and say, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are going to be fulfilled? They, they naturally want to know two things. When is this going to happen, this, this incredible, horrible event? And, and what, what things will lead up to it? What, what signs will there be? What signs can we look for? Think about signs along the highway as you're driving. They tell you maybe how, how far it is to another city still or to a gas station or something. You can make... Plans about your trip and, and timing and that kind of thing. Um, this is what they're asking about. And, and as we try to sort out this week and next week what, what Jesus is talking about in different parts of this passage, it's key to keep in mind simply what question he's answering. The temple is going to be destroyed. They say, when? When is this going to happen? And, and will there be signs leading up to it? Uh, sometimes... Uh, people get tripped up a little bit by, in, in Matthew's account, uh, he has a little bit fuller statement of the disciples. They ask, they, they add on the end, uh, asking about, and the end of the age. So these things and the end of the age. By which, well, many people take it to, to be speaking of the end of the world. But the disciples aren't necessarily speaking of the end of the world at all. But the, the final destruction of the temple to them is a, is a cataclysmic eschatological thing, right? It's, it is the end of an age, to be sure. Um, the end of the Jewish age, in a sense. When, when uh, worship at the temple in, in Jerusalem and, and uh, Old Testament worship, in a sense, comes to an end forever. Um, Jesus also uses the word end in this passage. Verse 7, for example. Uh, that is not the end, he says. Uh, in, in Luke's parallel account, Luke's Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks of the age of the Gentiles over against, implied, the age of the Jews. Right? The age of the Gentiles begins when the temple is destroyed. And so this is the end of the age. It's an end of an age when, when the temple and geographic Israel will be definitively ended in, in 70 AD when Jerusalem and, and the temple were destroyed and a new age is dawning, which Jesus calls the age of the Gentiles. Um, so anyway, Jesus hadn't said anything about the end of the world, right, in his original statement, uh, is the end of the temple, and this is what the disciples are asking about. Well, their, their curiosity about the future certainly reflects human nature, right? It's, uh, that's reflected still today in, in many wild speculations about this, this passage and others uh, about the future, but it's natural in any of us to want to know the future, right? And, and often to want to know more than God has been pleased to reveal. Uh, and so let's consider Jesus' response, looking at number three on your outline. 
And I want you to note first that, that Jesus has been asked for a sign before, asked for signs before. Uh, the Pharisees asked Jesus for signs. Um, and Jesus flatly refused. He suggested that their request for signs was in fact a sign of unbelief in them. And that their request is not exactly the same thing that the disciples are asking for. But notice here in this passage, Jesus essentially refuses to give any signs or ways to predict when anything in the future is going to happen. Um, the, the only thing in chapter 13 that is really a, a statement about, you know, look for this. This is what's going to happen is verse 14 and following. We'll come to that in a few minutes. But there Jesus is simply describing the thing they're already talking about, the temple being destroyed. Uh, this, he's talking about when it's going to happen and not things that are leading up to it and, and ways that you might make predictions about it. Jesus' first concern here then is, is that his disciples not be misled. He says there, there will be those who come along and profess to have special insight um, or a special identity and, and insight into redemptive history and timing and events and so on. And, and verse 6, he says, many will come in my name saying, I am he. And will mislead many. And, and in verse 21, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise. And he associates signs here with false teaching. Signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. In other words, Jesus says people will come and, and they'll say, uh, look here, look there. I, I know something about what God is doing in a redemptive history. I know how to read the signs, the signs of the times. Jesus says, don't believe them. Don't listen to them. Some see in, in these verses a reference to antichrist or antichrists in, in the future at the end of history. Um, I, I think that's clearly not what Jesus is talking about here. Again, we need to keep in mind this week and next week, Jesus is talking to who? He's talking... Not to you and me, to James, Peter, James, John, and Andrew about what they will see, what they will experience, right? Um, there are many examples of that from the first century. People who claim to be Christ, people who claim to have a knowledge of, of the future and, and how things were happening and led people astray. Um, well, Jesus goes on to list, verse 7 and, and following, other things, wars. Rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. These are the kinds of things that people in, in that day uh, and today would tend to take as, as signs of something. Uh, something big in history or ways to predict a great event or even to predict the end. Um, just one example of that tendency. You can go on the internet and find a well-known uh, rapture index, it's called. And this, this website um, takes dozens of categories of, of different things um, that, that supposedly have a connection biblically to, to the end times um, from wars and earthquakes to the price of oil and antichrist activity, whatever that means. Um, and, and each of these categories is assigned a value of one to five. So there's a lot going on in this category. There's not a lot going on. And all of those are added up to give... This, this rapture index, which is a number that's supposed to be an indication of maybe how close we are to the end times. And there's a, there's a little key on there to help you understand the number. If, if it's in a certain low range, this means low prophetic activity. If it's in moderate, 
prophetic activity, then a higher range is high prophetic activity. Well, the, the current number listed there, I checked it this week for you all, um, that, 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 that category is literally labeled buckle your seatbelts. Um, so I guess we're, we're supposed to be close. But what, but what does Jesus say about these things? Wars, earthquakes, and so on. Verse 7. These things must take place, but that is not yet the end. These are not signs of the end. They're non-signs. right? And he reiterates in verse 8, these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Jesus says these, these are not signs. These are simply things that are they're going on then in their lifetime. They're going to continue going on. And you shouldn't read into them anything about the future. You shouldn't see wars and earthquakes and things and see, say, oh, these things are increasing. We must be getting close to the end. Jesus literally tells his disciples twice. These are non-signs. Uh, as we read Revelation and the, the cycles of symbolic language in Revelation that, that picture the time from Jesus' first coming to his second coming, what do we read about there? We read about wars and earthquakes and all kinds of turmoil simply continuing. Right? It, it characterizes the world then and now and, and in the future. Um, not signs of, of the end or of anything else. There, and there are, again, there are examples of these things from the first century. They're not something future to us that we're to look for. Jesus is telling Peter, James, John, and Andrew what they will experience. There were massive earthquakes in the year 61, the year 63. Uh, there were wars and uh, civil wars, even in the Roman Empire, in the, the relative peace in terms of the ancient world of the Roman Empire, there were civil wars within their lifetime. One year, there were four Roman Empire, or four Roman emperors uh, because of all the, all the civil wars. There was, uh, in, in 40 AD, the Emperor Caligula came to Jerusalem and tried to set up a statue of himself in the temple. And, and their, their ancient sources tell there were, there were Rampant rumors of wars across the empire then, that, that great war was going to break out between the Jews and Rome. It would still be another uh, 30 years until that, that happened really significantly. But again, one, one way to understand this, there, there isn't any information about the future that Jesus is giving his disciples aside from the, the temple being destroyed. Just that difficult things and, and suffering are going to continue. I think what he's telling them is he's about to ascend to the throne and, 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 and inaugurate his kingdom. And yet that doesn't mean things are going to be easy or change. Wars are going to continue. Earthquakes and famines are going to continue. Um, James Edwards comments on this. The disciples and believers since want to know the future, but Jesus directs them unflinchingly to the present. Jesus' focus in this passage is don't be misled. Don't fear the things that are going to happen or going to continue to happen. Don't fear what, what think people are going to say about those things. But focus on faithfulness and trust. That's the emphasis of this passage. Just another uh, example of this. I, I was at a, uh, in, in Florida, it was a coffee shop I go to regularly um, and there was a, a Christian group that occupied the, the floor above the coffee shop, and they, they advertised a, a weekly meeting on Wednesdays, and it was open to the public. And so I went to it once, 
and it was it was labeled a flashpoint geoprophecy update. And I didn't know what a flashpoint geoprophecy update was, and so I was curious. And and I would commend the brother who led this thing for his um, longing for Christ to return, his desire to see the lost saved, and so on. But but what this what this meeting was was his going through. Uh, with very fancy technology, going through current events, mostly in the Middle East, and and connecting them very specifically to Ezekiel, to Revelation, to Mark 13, and and so on, um, and and telling us how we can anticipate the end times through treaties that Iran was signing and 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 things like this. And and my point is simply that it seems to me he's supposing to do the very thing that Jesus tells his disciples not to do. Right? If someone says, hey, I know the times. I know how to read the signs. This is what's going to happen. I know something of God's hidden timing and plans. Jesus says, don't, don't listen. That's, that's simply not where he's telling his disciples to put their faith and their, their emphasis and their, their effort. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, I think it can be so distracting to believers today. Um, We should remember what Jesus said in Luke 17. This is not the Olivet Discourse. He said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not see it. You'll you'll long to see Jesus again. And they will say to you, Look there, look here. He says, Do not go out or follow them. In other words, there are times coming, probably hard times, when you're going to long to see Jesus. You're going to wonder, Where is he? What is he going to do next? When is he going to come? And and some people are going to stand up and say, I know. I know the signs of his coming. I know the timing. And Jesus says, there are no signs. You must ignore those people. Is his command to his disciples. His focus is on their, their faithfulness and their trust. Every generation, I think, has people who see some increase in, in wars and Earthquakes and that kind of thing and connect it to Jesus coming again. Every generation, I think, has people who see those things increasing or something and, and think, well, we're, we're, getting, we're getting close you know, to the end times. I think maybe ironically today is that we're living, at least in the United States, in absolutely unprecedented peace in terms of the history of the world. There's, there's nothing that compares with, with it in the last... 200 years of United States history, 150 years. Um, unprecedented lack of famine, unprecedented lack of disease. Um, so uh, that, that makes it hard to try to, uh, try to read the scriptures this way as well. But Jesus commands his disciples relative to uh, a fascination with signs and, and reading the times, making predictions, uh, that that's not where their, their uh, attention is to be. He also goes on to warn them in verse 9, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And and he goes on in the next several verses to describe that further. And I'm not going to spend much time on this here today, but Jesus' church still experiences these things today. His disciples did, and the church has throughout history. And Jesus' pastoral word to you, to the church today, is, is the same. Don't be misled. Don't be frightened. Uh, These things are not unexpected. They're not signs of something. They're not a sign that his kingdom is failing either. 
Uh, and, and he implies, again, a call to trust him. And in part, he, he, what he says here in these verses is that these, these persecutions will be an unprecedented opportunity for the gospel, for witness, witness to kings and governors. And the gospel will spread, the church will grow, even as it's, it's persecuted. And that uh, has been confirmed in, in spades uh, throughout church history. Well, look at number four on your outline then, as we look at, at uh, what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. In other words, the, the one who perseveres in faith and trust and obedience to Jesus uh, through this trial will be saved. Uh, he will be saved. It will be hard, but Jesus will save him. And he says in verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. What is Jesus talking about there? The, he, this is included in all of the... Um, versions of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew and Luke. Uh, it's, a, it's a reference to Daniel, to the book of Daniel, quotation from Daniel, uh, the abomination of desolation. It's generally understood by in Jewish history and, and in Christian history to have uh, been fulfilled by uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in, in 168 B.C., so long before Christ, but in the intertestamental period, when he came to Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem, and entered the temple, and, and just to be the the biggest jerk that he could be and upset the Jews, he um, set up an altar to Zeus on the true altar in the temple and sacrificed a pig, uh, which of course was was um, against Old Testament law. That's what triggered the Maccabean revolt, uh, which won the Jews their freedom for a time and is celebrated in Hanukkah, uh, of course. But using that language, Jesus points to something else like that happening at the temple. Uh, and in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus adds, and you will see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So there's just going to be this desecration of the temple and Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. Again, what's the topic of the passage? Verse 2, Jesus saying the temple is being destroyed. Clearly, he's telling them about that day that in 70 AD when, when, the, when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed by, by Rome. <coughs> So on, on top of a millennium of warnings to his people and, and Jesus' own warnings, Jesus now announces the final destruction of the temple. Um, but he adds this interesting instruction to his people to escape. In verse 14, is, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And if you're on, on your housetop, don't even go down to, to grab your stuff. Get away. Flee to the hills. That may seem like a rather basic uh, instruction. You know, when the invading army is coming, run away, run to safety. But it's actually, uh, Jesus says it because it's exactly the opposite of what would be, what would be practiced, what would be instinctual in the ancient world. Right? In the ancient world, uh, the invading army is approaching. What does everyone do? They, they grab their things, they grab as much food as they can, you go into the walled cities. Right? So everyone around Jerusalem and little towns around would grab as much stuff as they could and go into the city and stay with relatives or friends behind the, the great wall where it was safe. And Jesus is saying he knows if, if you do that, when Rome comes, you'll be slaughtered. Um, Jesus describes that terrible day in verse 19. 
Those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. That's quite a strong description and, and many have um, concluded that those words are too strong for the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. How could this be the worst thing that, uh, that ever happened or at least there was nothing worse? Uh, but again, I, I think not only do we need, before we before we conclude that and, and think this is a, a great tribulation as it's, as it's understood, um, we need the reminder, again, that Jesus is telling his four disciples here what they will experience. Verse 30 we'll come to next week in their generation. right? Um, and he's answering their question about the temple being destroyed. But also just consider what actually happened. Forty years later, in the year 70... Uh, Emperor Vespasian sent his son Titus, General Titus, um, to put down this Jewish revolt. And he marched to Jerusalem and besieged Jerusalem uh, for quite some time and eventually broke through the wall and conquered Jerusalem, destroyed it, destroyed the temple. And Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian who was an observer of this in that day, um, says that it was... It was on the weekend of Passover, so there were extra people in Jerusalem. There are more people than normal, many more. Uh, also because of the approaching army, all the surrounding towns had run into Jerusalem behind the wall. So it was packed with people. Josephus says 1.1 million people were slaughtered in those days. Men, women, elderly, children, uh, without distinction. 100,000 taken into slavery. Uh, 1.1 million people killed in the streets running with blood. Uh, and Josephus describes that, that Titus, Emperor or General Titus, um, left left just three towers standing of the wall of Jerusalem as sort of a painful reminder of what what used to be, right? And then just Josephus gives this description. But for all the rest of the wall surrounding Jerusalem. It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those that came after believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. And Josephus ends, though he's, no, he's not quoting Christ or he's no follower of Christ, he ends with this evaluation, no other city has ever endured such miseries. So I really don't think it seems like verse 19 is a stretch at all. There have been great atrocities um, other atrocities in history before then and since then. But in Jesus' words, none that were necessarily worse than this. A remarkable, Another remarkable thing is that uh, ancient sources suggest that Christians were not significantly among the numbers of those who were slaughtered in Jerusalem in those days. Uh, why? Well, they heeded Jesus' warning. Right? When the armies came, uh, they didn't run into the city. They fled to the mountains, and, and the church was spread. Now think of the parallels between what Jesus, what the disciples here are anticipating in, in this great coming of Jesus and judgment against Jerusalem and, and us. Just like the, the flood, the plagues, and the exodus, this is a, a prototype, an example, a warning of final judgment. 
right? When, when all sin and evil and rebellion and all of its effects will be removed forever. And, and you need to be sure of what Christians then need to be sure of. Is are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Do you have the assurance of verse 13 that if you persevere through whatever the Lord allows in your lifetime, you will be saved? Because you have died and raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Him. He is your Lord and Savior. Uh, he, he has taken in Himself that final judgment in your place already. The, the specific events that Jesus mentions here or in the past, but we, we experience some of the things Jesus describes here generally still, right? Wars, and earthquakes, and so on. All, all of these things, all of the trials we face remain occasions for you and I not to be misled, not to be frightened, not to despair. We'll take up this theme again next week, but, but Jesus' encouragement to you is do not be frightened. Obey and trust that he is Lord of all of history. And you will be saved. Um, it's very hard to trust that. Um, or at times not to wish that Jesus ruling and reigning in heaven meant different things. Meant that things were easier. Or looked different. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, famous preacher from a while back, um, gave this illustration once of a, an explorer who was climbing in the mountains and he fell over the side of a cliff. And as he was falling, he grabbed onto a twig that was sticking out of the side of the cliff. And, uh, you know, this kept him from going on this dark chasm below, but the, the twig is pulling out of the side of the cliff. And he looks up to heaven and he says, is there anybody up there who can help me? And a, and a loud, strong voice comes back and says, yes, I can help you. Trust me. Let go of the branch. And the guy looks back into the chasm and looks up to heaven and says, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> We're going to come to Gethsemane in the next chapter, chapter 14, where Jesus himself says, Lord, I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to go through this. Is, is there another way? Right? And yet, he ultimately resolves to trust and obey the Father. And there are so many opportunities for you and I to fear, to uh, wish that things were different. Or wish the answer was different. Physical suffering. Or maybe a broken relationship you're suffering. Um, or just watching the news and getting up, caught up in the outrage machine and, and complaining about all sorts of things, wishing our country was different or wishing our world were different. All of these things are opportunities, as Psalm 46 says, to be still and know that I am God. They're all opportunities to hear, as Psalm 2 says, that God sits in heaven as the nations rage and laughs. He says, I've set my king to reign. They're all opportunities to remember that the Father seated him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Do we believe that? These are all opportunities for us to hear Jesus say, as he does in John 16, I have said these things to you, hard things, that you may have peace in me. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again this week for your word, uh, that it gives us uh, light. We thank you for the ways that it challenges us and encourages us. Um, Thank you that it is realistic uh, about our world and our weaknesses, uh, but calls us to to trust uh, again in the Lord Jesus, um, in, in our unfailing rock. And we pray that you would help us to do that this week, in coming weeks and years, uh, as we face difficult things. Um, help us not to be misled, to be frightened, uh, but to live in trust and faithfulness to him. We pray all this in his name. Amen.